0: Today is Palm Sunday, as you know. This is the beginning of a week that is often called Holy Week, although it's really not a week, it's actually eight days, Sunday to Sunday, from Palm Sunday through Easter. This day, the first time it happened, was a highly unusual day. The disciples were used to uh, people kind of mobbing Jesus, uh, you know, just doing too much, vying for his attention, you know, demanding uh, of Jesus, asking for different things. But Jesus never really sought that out, did he? You know, it just happened. It was because of him, because of what he could do, because he heal people, he could address the needs that people had. But on this day, it almost seemed as if Jesus planned for that to happen, that he welcomed it that he wanted people to welcome him into the city of Jerusalem and to praise him as he made his way there. It was a climactic week was coming, an auspicious week was coming, laying ahead of Jesus like this, this opportunity, but also very difficult challenge. Jesus had known for a long time that he was going to be crucified in Jerusalem that Friday. But then he would rise from the dead on the following Sunday. And the Bible tells us that Jesus resolutely set his face toward Jerusalem so that he could do what he came to do. And that was to give us a way back to God so that we could be with them forever. On Palm Sunday, Jesus started the ball rolling. He started moving the train So that by week's end, he could make the ultimate sacrifice of himself upon the cross, paying for our sins. He wasn't happy that he was going to die such an excruciating death, but Jesus willingly submitted to the Father's will so that he could accomplish our salvation. We spend our whole lives avoiding death. We spend our whole lives postponing our deaths as long as we can. But Jesus went to his death willingly. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen to him, but he never ran from pain or suffering or death. Now, if we use kind of the T-minus system that NASA came up with, you know, and they were launching rockets, we would say that Palm Sunday is T-minus five days until the crucifixion, and T-minus seven days until the resurrection. So let's get this kind of this week in mind, which is Jesus' framework. No one else knew what was about to happen, but Jesus willingly proceeded with the plan, knowing how it was to unfold. Can you imagine what it was like for Jesus to know that your death was just five days away? How do you think you would feel? How, how do you think you would live if you knew that you just had 120 hours left in your life, let's say, something very strong, must have motivated him to commence the events that would lead to his death on a cross. None of the events that took place in that final week of Jesus were a surprise to him. At least three times previously, Jesus had told his disciples exactly what was going to happen to him And now, one last time, Jesus told his disciples what to expect. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us what he said. Let's read it in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 20. Now, Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, and on the way, he took the twelve aside, and he said to them, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. The events of Palm Sunday, and particularly Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, are recorded in all four of the Gospels. But we're going to turn today and spend most of our time in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 19. So if you have your Bible with us, uh, please open up to Luke 19. If you want to use one of the Bibles in the seat in front of you, just turn to page 853. They'll make it real easy. And I want us to refer back and, and forth to this chapter. We'll look at a couple other Gospels, but most of our time we're going to be in Luke chapter 19 today. So if you keep that in front of you, it will be helpful. And what it says here in Luke chapter 19, starting verse 28, that after Jesus had said some things to his disciples, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. He's going towards Jerusalem. And as he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, kind of looking down into the city from up above, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Now, Bethany and Bethphage were about two miles from Jerusalem. You could see the city from there. Jesus had often stayed in Bethany at the home of Lazarus and his two sisters, Martha and Mary, that you probably know about, and this is what he did the first few days of this very week, Holy Week. Now, it seems likely that Jesus knew the owner of the donkey, uh, so that when they objected to two men just kind of untying their animal, they would have an answer. He had made prior arrangements. The two disciples carried out Jesus' instructions, and then Luke reports this, it says, those Who were sent ahead and found it just as he had told them. Uh, Untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied exactly what Jesus said. The Lord needs it. And they let him have it. And they brought it to Jesus. They threw their cloaks on the colt and they put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. Now, in that day, people would spread their outer garments on the road to welcome Jesus or whoever they thought was coming along that they wanted to honor. They would show their submission to him, their allegiance to him or whatever and say, we welcome you. And that's what people started doing. Now, the other gospels tell us in addition to that, people went out and they cut palm branches and leafy branches from the fields and they spread them on the road as well. So there's this whole path created for Jesus to come into the city, hence the name Palm Sunday. Now, the cult that the disciples went and got was a donkey. We find that out from other Gospels. But this whole idea of Jesus riding on a donkey just doesn't add up to us, does it? You know, we think of a donkey as a, a barn animal, a beast of burden, used for common purposes like plowing fields or maybe pulling cor- carts or, or maybe carrying heavy loads that are too heavy for the people to carry. We think of them as stubborn animals. We've had our own experiences with stubborn animals. I remember one in particular— That we had for life nativity and somehow became my job to get it from Judge Smith's barn across the road to our building here. And he would not come across that asphalt street no matter what. We drug him across that. That's what we think of donkeys. We don't think of donkeys as something that this king would ride into town on. And yet in their framework, it was exactly the right thing. Because to a Jew in biblical times, kings and princes and judges all rode on donkeys. And it was not considered a lowly thing, but a kingly thing to do, a noble thing to do. And now a new king was being crowned in Israel. Just as Solomon, the new king, was given David's donkey to ride on, Jesus rides into town on a donkey that has never been ridden before. He is fulfilling a long-standing prophecy, a prophecy that had gone on unfulfilled for nearly 500 years. Matthew tells us this. He says, This took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, see, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This well-known, highly anticipated prophecy had been given by the prophet Zechariah about 520 B.C. And when Zechariah first gave it, it was a downtime, a low time for the nation of Israel. They had experienced defeat and exile into Babylon. And some of them had just started coming back, trying to rebuild the city. But there was in ruins. People were poor. People didn't have enough materials. They were threatened all the time by the surrounding enemies. And so in the midst of this, this terrible time, this prophecy from God came to them, promising them that one day he would send a king to lead them out of bondage into freedom. And now, almost 500 years later, the Jewish people were still waiting for that prophecy to come true. Was it in fact Jesus who would finally Fulfill their longings. And I think it is this, above everything else, that kind of drove everybody out to the streets. I want to see Jesus. I've heard about Jesus. But could it be? Could it be that Zechariah's prophecy would be fulfilled? Luke continues, chapter 19, verse 37. When he came near the place where the road goes down, the mount of olives the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise god in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen blessed is he the king who comes in the name of the lord peace in heaven and glory in the highest the feast of passover had begun and this was a very big deal for jews Tens of thousands had come to Jerusalem for this huge festival. Hundreds, perhaps thousands, were staying in the city wherever they could. But thousands more were staying in all these surrounding villages like Bethany and Bethphage with maybe perhaps relatives. And then each day would make their way into the city. And so as Jesus rode into Jerusalem, many other people were already making there. And they said, there's Jesus. And they welcomed him into the city as well. Jesus' popularity was immense. We... We can't even imagine that. We, we have our rock stars and our actors and actresses and different people that we lift up for sports figures. But Jesus, in that day and time, without the benefit of radio, TV, or the internet, had a following, and people would drive, drive. They would <laughs> maybe drive. They would ride or walk for miles to get to where he was. And they would, they would spend days And so Jesus would feed them because they ran out of their own food, you know, and they're still wanting to be with Jesus. So he would feed them before they would famish and drop on the way home. This was a big deal to see Jesus. And this popularity had been growing for three years because of this healing, because of his preaching. And Luke says that the crowd got so excited because of the miracles. And also we find out because they had heard that he raised Lazarus from the dead. This was news. Jesus raised the dead, a man who had been dead for four days, and they brought him back to life. And so when Jesus appeared on that donkey, the crowd was naturally filled with hope and and anticipation for what might happen when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem. Many of them were expecting perhaps a political king, a military king, and they just couldn't help themselves. Could it be? And they shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. The blessed is he, this king who comes in the name of the Lord. And Hosanna really just means save us, (laughs) deliver us. That is on the thought, the heart of every person in that crowd. Now, I want us to kind of Step back and look at the faces of the crowd today. Look at the people that are in this mixed crowd today. Of course, you have the people that we've already been talking about that are so anxious to see Jesus. We're not going to look at their faces. We know they're full of joy, anticipation, and everything else. But let's look at other faces. Let's look at, first of all, the faces of those who opposed him, these Jewish leaders who saw him as a threat to their own power and popularity and their dreams of what Israel would be and do. And they were very angry to see Jesus riding into Jerusalem and everybody, you know, adoring him, praising him, throwing down their cloaks and their their, uh, branches in front of him. And Luke tells us that some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. You know, they were angry. But Jesus replied, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the very stones are going to cry out. And these Pharisees knew that this spontaneous parade could cause a problem. You know, the the, the Romans didn't like when crowds got together. They didn't like it when people got boisterous and excited because that looked kind of like a riot to them. And they didn't want this to go on and, and, and for Rome to, you know, come down on this hard again. So they said, Jesus, end all of this. But more than that, they were angry, weren't they? Angry and frustrated that the people loved Jesus so much, that Jesus you know, was gaining in popularity and strength and people were coming to him in the multitudes. And Jesus simply answered them, I can't stop this. There's no stopping this. Why would I? John's gospel tells us that the Pharisees then said to one another, you know, we're getting nowhere. <laughs> you know, he says, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world is going after him. So they're threatened by Jesus. They're filled with anger and fear. That's what we see registered on their faces as they watch what unfolds. And Then there's another set of faces in the crowd. And this is the face of the disciples. They're walking along with Jesus. And what kind of look is on their faces? What were they thinking about all that was happening that day? Well, the disciples were confused. <laughs> they're baffled by what was going on. Now, they saw Jesus' popularity but what is going on now? He's riding on this donkeys. He's going down into Jerusalem like some kind of a conquering king. What's going to happen? We know that even some of them expected that Jesus would become this military king. We think maybe that's why Judas Iscariot betrayed him, to force his hand. Okay, now he's got to rise up and, and be the king we want him to be. Whatever it is on their mind, they're, they're confused. They're baffled. In fact, John, who is one of them, talks about that. He says, he says when John, Jesus was glorified... Later, they remembered, but at first they didn't understand what is going on. And it's only after they thought about it and these things had been written about him and they remember we did these things. Even though Jesus had explained to them numerous times what was going to happen, the disciples didn't get it. And so let's not be too hard on them, because if we were one of them, we would have been right along with them, would we? Isn't that the way we follow Jesus too? Kind of haphazardly, kind of confused sometimes, kind of, you know, not understanding what you're doing, Lord. But learning to trust. And then later we can look back and say, I get it now, I understand now, but back then I didn't know. And later the confusion is cleared up. Right now they're just amazed, they're bewildered. But now I want us to look at a final face in the crowd. It's not the people adoring him. It's not the Jewish leaders. It's not the disciples. It's Jesus himself. Look into the face of Jesus himself. And what was Jesus thinking about all these multitudes that were praising him that day? Luke tells us in Luke 19, 41, he says, as he approached Jerusalem and he saw the city. I mean, he's watching everything in front of him. He's riding on this donkey. Everybody's mobbing him, welcoming him. And it says he wept over it. What a time to cry. What a time to weep in the midst of all of this. And it says, if you, Jesus said, even you, talking to Jerusalem, the city, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an encampment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side, and they will dash you to the ground. You and the children within your walls they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. All this commotion, all this activity, all this excitement, and Jesus is weeping. He heard the cries of people longing to be delivered, and he wept. This was a triumph. But with tears, Jesus wept, Luke tells us, because people did not understand what would truly bring them peace. It was hidden from their eyes. Jesus wept, Luke tells us, because he knew that their enemies, the Romans, would one day lay siege to this city and tear down its wall and slaughter its inhabitants. And this happened in 70 A.D., King Herod's magnificent temple. His palace were completely demolished, not one stone left on another. Jesus wept, Luke tells us, because God himself had come into their midst to save them and they missed him. They didn't recognize him. And Jesus knew that those very same crowds who were shouting Hosanna on Sunday would be shouting crucify him five days later. Ultimately, Jesus wept for the suffering they would experience in this life and the next because of the hardness of their hearts. God was there. God was right in front of them. God was moving. God was bringing salvation to them just as He has promised, and they missed it. God had come to earth to save them, and they would have none of it. And as we look on the face of Jesus and we see Him weeping over Jerusalem, perhaps we can begin to understand the love. That he has for all of us. A love which compelled him to die. Please understand. Jesus was not weeping for himself. And what he would suffer. By weeks end. Jesus was weeping. Because of his intense love. For the people of Jerusalem. And every lost person in this world. He came. On earth to earth to save. And Despite. All they were going to put him through that week, unjust trial, false accusations, crowds chanting for his death, the insults, the beatings, and this brutal thing called crucifixion. Despite all that, Jesus still loved these people. And at the end, he he would hang on a cross to prove it. Jesus wept over the unbelief. And the spiritual blindness that hung over Jerusalem. Just as Jesus longs for every lost sinner among us to come home today. And while the people were praising him as their conquering king. Jesus wept for the people in that crowd because he wanted to save them all. Jesus our king loves us also. He loves all kinds of people, even his enemies. And he weeps over our unbelief, hard hearts. But he often gets from so many. The Bible says that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but would rather they turn from their ways and live. Ezekiel thirty-three eleven. The Bible says God doesn't want anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance, 2 Peter Three, nine. So what causes God to cry? He who should never be sad, never cry. What so moves his heart that he weeps? It is people going to hell when they don't need to. He's already brought salvation. He's already given the gift through his son, Jesus Christ. And they turn away and reject and avoid and discount and discredit and refuse the offer. This is what breaks the heart of God, that anyone should end up in hell. And Jesus wept with compassion over the people in the city of Jerusalem that day because they didn't understand what God was doing. They did not accept him as their eternal king so they could be saved. This heart of God, we need to understand, still beats for lost people today. His love has already been proven by what it cost him. How can any of us miss such a great salvation? How can anyone reject such an offer? And if the angels in heaven, were told in the scriptures, rejoice over every lost sinner that repents, they must also weep over anyone who chooses to go to hell instead. If you're a sinner, and we all are or have been, will you choose Jesus as your king today? Sinner, will you repent of your sins? And will you choose Jesus as your Lord and Savior today? This is the offer. This is the response that will change your eternal destiny. <laughs> oh, sinner, will you fall on your knees and will you accept the salvation that God is offering you in Jesus Christ. Shall we pray? Oh, Lord, you have done so much for us. Your love is truly amazing. We have seen the expression of that love in Jesus Christ and his offer to save us because of his death, because he's paid the penalty. He set us free. If we will just make him our king, Lord, if there's anybody within the sound of my voice today, whether they're in this room or they're watching online or even watching later, I pray, Lord, that you would speak to their hearts right now. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day when they need to yield their life to you. They need to repent of their sin. They need to confess. Faith in Christ. They need to be baptized into Christ so that their sins will be forgiven and they will receive your spirit to indwell within them, to, to help them from that day forward as they live for Jesus. Lord, that, that is our desire, that all would know your love and they would respond so you never have to weep for them again. Lord, thank you for loving us. Pray today that if someone needs to make a decision for Christ, they will stand up and do that today. They will speak to us today and say, today is a day of salvation for me. I claim Jesus as my Lord and Savior today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing a song together about the wonderful cross of Jesus. If you have a decision to make about your relationship with the Lord, you can come up and be seated here on the front. We're going to spend time with you today to make sure that decision is real and genuine and that you know what you're doing in that. Baptize you into Christ even today. And if that is your desire, to yield your life to Christ, make Him the king of your life, we invite you to do that today. Let's stand together and let's sing. And we pray that others will respond.